And then he says to me, John, look at me when I'm talking to you. So, so I look up from my nine-year-old eyes being shut. And then he goes, I have never been so proud of anybody in my entire life. And my little buddy today, this morning, I am proud to be your dad. You're listening to the Elevate Podcast, and I'm your host, Robert Glazer. Join me as I talk to world-class performers about how they build their capacity and reach greater heights in leadership, business, and life, and how you can do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Our guest today, John O'Leary, has dramatically escaped death and has dedicated his life and career to inspiring awe in others. He's an internationally acclaimed speaker, host of the very popular Life Inspired Podcast, and the author of multiple best-selling books, his latest In Awe, released in April 2020, which we'll talk about that's a tough time in a release of book. Uh, John, welcome. Uh, great to have you on the Elevate Podcast. Robert, big fan. Honored to be on your show, and thanks for making time for me. I'll, I'll come back to that, releasing a book in April 2020, because I'm sure we'll talk about lessons when things don't go according to plan. But uh, you know, you have a truly extraordinary uh, story surviving a catastrophic accident that left you with a 1% or less chance of survival. Can you right. explain a little bit about that story and what happened when you were nine? Yeah. And, you, you know, ask as many clarifying questions yeah. as you like as I go through this. But when I was nine years old, I witnessed boys about 11 years old in my neighborhood playing with fire and gasoline. And man, you know, Monkey see, monkey do in life. And I figured if these big old-fashioned 11-year-olds could do it, so could I. So I walked on a Saturday morning into my parents' garage, bent over a five-gallon can of gasoline, lit a piece of cardboard on fire, and began the science experiment. And I waited for liquid to come out. And as your listeners all probably know already, before the liquid, the fumes. And the fumes grabbed that little flame, created this huge explosion. That split the can in two. It launched me 20 feet against the far side of the garage, covered me in gasoline. The entire garage immediately was aflame. And when you're little, we were all taught and trained what to do when we're on fire. And of course, we can all say monotone, stop, drop, and roll. But yeah, until you're on fire. And then you don't stop and drop and roll, in particular when you're nine and you've been blasted against the far side of the wall, you freak out. And you panic and you run. And so, so that's you were conscious after that? Totally. And frequently what people will say is, John, like, did, did your mom tell you about this? Like, how'd you get these details? Who filled in the blanks? And, and for me, there are moments in life that are just crystal clear, yeah. laser focused. And for one of those days for me was January 17th, 1987. So anything we talk about from that day, these are my memories and they are very, very clear. So yeah, I stayed conscious the entire morning. And so who found you or who got you or where did you, so you didn't stop, drop and roll. Did you run out of the garage or what, what happened next? Well, that's a cool story. And it's actually seldom asked. Normally it goes right from the explosion to the hospital and, and you know, yeah. who's you there, John, which is a cool story. But before that happened, someone else had to step in. And this is always true in life. What happened for me is I ran through the garage, through the kitchen, through the family room into the front hall and just stood on top of a rug begging for a hero and praying for a savior, man. Like I'll, I'll take anybody, I'll take anybody. I, I saw my brother, Jim, he was 17 at the time. I was nine. He starts running toward me. And I remember thinking, man, anybody else, not my brother. I like, I need a firefighter or a parent here or my next door neighbor, Ray. I need anybody but Jim. And yet 
this was his moment, man, to change, which I know is part of your mission, and to shine, to become a far better version of himself. He runs past me. He picks up a rug. He then runs over to me and the flames are leaping, Robert, three feet off of my body. It's being fueled by gasoline in all directions. And it takes my brother a couple minutes to do it, but he knocks down the flames. He wraps me in the rug. He carries me outside, jumps on top of me. We roll around together. He then goes back into a burning house. He calls 911. He ushers my golden retriever dog out of the house. And then my so he two- was the only one home. Yeah, he's the only adult home, if you will. He's 17. But 1987, in the state of the Missouri, they always nominate the lifesaver of the year. And it's normally like EMS or police, fire services, whatever. And, and in 1987, the lifesaver of the year was a 17-year-old jerk, older brother named Jim O'Leary, who saw this crisis and took action and saved my life. And did he get injured in that too? Yeah. So another great question. So he was burned first and secondary on his hands and arms. And the first degree is like when you touch the stovetop, it goes away later on. Second degree is, you know, you're going to bubble up and blister up in the areas that are second degree, but eventually they're going to fade. So he was burned on his hands and arms, but has made a full physical recovery. You you make me feel bad in telling the story because I, I, you know, you get lucky. Like I I was very inquisitive. The child too. I remember one day thinking there I was playing with some parts and there was a, a electronic um, like video game that I just didn't use anymore. And there was like some old lamp parts. And I was like, huh, I wonder if I can make this plug in. And so I undid the battery things. I tied up the, I don't even know what I did. I plugged it in and it, it exploded. But like, again, I could have, could have, I got away scot-free, but uh, yeah, I, it's, I was just playing around with it. It seemed like an interesting experiment and no one got hurt. My wife and I have four kids, three of them are boys. And she looks at these boys and she's like, something's wrong with our boys, John. Like, you know, that they're just, they're, they're free. Like they're blowing up lamps, man. They're, they're crazy. And, and I'm like, Beth, they're, they're little boys. This is what we do. We experiment. We do things that are reckless and, and our job is to the best of our abilities, try to keep them between the lines and graduate them at some point from high school or college or beyond. But I think all little kids in particular are little boys do things that they look back on and they regret. And for me, one of those things was blowing up a can of gasoline in my garage. That's a good one. So your parents aren't home. I think it was just you and your brother, right? right. You get rushed to the hospital. And then how, how long were you there? Right. Well, even the first day, I mean, it's a cool story, but when I'm laying in the hospital bed, you know, the doctors, nurses are running around me and they're trying to keep me calm, but in their, their pace, I recognize this is not good. Uh, What they're looking at, by the way, is a kid who's been burned on 100% of his body and 87% of those burns are third degree. So you mentioned earlier in the introduction, like a death sentence. And absolutely. In in 2021, this should kill a patient. But in 1987, there's just really no chance. And so this is going on around me and I'm scared. But the primary thought I had that morning was, oh, my gosh, my dad is going to freaking kill me when he finds out what I did to the house. You know, like my father, he got mad at me for far less than burning down his house. I'm pretty sure I know what's going to happen here. And then I hear his voice down the hall. And again, these are my recollection. I remember it very specifically. I hear his voice and he's saying, uh, you know, where is my boy, John? He's a business owner, Robert, and he's a, a veteran. So he's type A, he's driven. I blew up his house. I know why he's in the hospital. He's come to finish me off. This nurse does me no favor. She brings him back into the room. He pulls back the curtain. The old man marches in. 
And then he says to me, John, look at me when I'm talking to you. So, so I look up from my nine-year-old eyes being shut. And then he goes, I have never been so proud of anybody in my entire life. And my little buddy today, this morning, I am proud to be your dad. And then he goes, I love you. I love you. I love you. And I remember thinking as he's, you know, laying into me like this, thinking, oh my gosh, you know, nobody told my dad what happened. You know, like he, he must not know what I've done to his house or how these injuries have happened to my body. And yet I think as we grow sometimes in age and in wisdom and in love and in life, you recognize what matters, man. And my dad was at the office that day doing what mattered. But then when life changed, he changed too. And my, my father candidly had always been kind of fear-driven, which is one way to operate a business or a relationship or your spiritual journey or a life or a country. You and I were talking about that before we recorded. Fear, yeah. baby. Fear sells. More attend. Yeah. But that day, my dad shifted full tilt from fear into love. He changed. I saw it in his face. I heard it in his voice. And then I changed. And it did not make five and a half months of burn care easy or losing your fingers at amputation easy or weekly skin graft operations or daily bandage changes. None of it was easy. It was all really hard. But I think his love and the way he stepped into the room that day made the journey possible. So when I'm able to recount my story, what I love about it is I'm not the hero of it. I'm the storyteller. I'm the recipient many times. But the heroes are my brother, Jim, my sisters, what they did, my mom, my dad, the staff, the, the volunteers, the community. It's, it's the others. And so that's what I always like to celebrate when I share these stories. So it's interesting, you know, you obviously now make a living, you know, telling the story and talking about it. And it's inspired a lot of your work. Um, but the accident in your recovery, you family kept this private for almost 20 years. And then your parents decide to turn the story into a book, uh, Overwhelming Odds. And, you know, the account of the accident, and that's pretty harrowing. Uh, and writing and talking about it must have been hard. What What compelled your parents to sort of change their stance of, you know, from not, not, I mean, that's a pretty wide, like, we don't talk about it to write a book. So um, what, what changed there? Well, it, again, before we hit record, you and I yeah. were talking about COVID and we were talking about how the world and our own world radically changed over the past 12 months. Well, my dad got Parkinson's disease. Now it's been three decades. But at one point he lost his job, this career that he started, this firm that he mm. built, he lost the opportunity to work there because of this. Stress elevates Parkinson's disease. So elevating isn't always a good thing, right? It, yeah. His stress was elevating the impact of Parkinson's. So he had to pull back from that. He reflected on his life. And with my mom's help, they wrote a little book, like you mentioned, called Overwhelming Odds. They realized this thing they'd never talked about, and we collectively had never really whispered about as a family, was profoundly transformational in a positive way for them as a couple and for us as a family. So they write this thing. They put my picture on the front of it. It's the unauthorized biography of John O'Leary. So, you know, it's, it, there it is, man. The people who knew me best now write my story. How old were you then when that was written? 27, 28. So it had been almost two decades, but I, you know, back in college, I didn't tell fraternity brothers about it. And I never told the people I interviewed with. And I never told the guys eventually, as I started my own business, what had happened to me, it was behind me. And it was not at all part of who I was is the way I viewed my scars and my past. 
So if people asked you about it or a scar or something like that, what did you react? You know, how did, what did you just explain the least amount possible? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and almost offended. Like how the hell, what, or what are you focused on my hands? That, that really, that's what this thing's about. Yeah. Well, yeah, John, your hands are completely different. I'm holding the, them up right now for Robert to see the fingers have been amputated on the knuckles across the board, but I did not want them to see that. And I did not see that, or at least I tried not to. And so when they called it out first, I was kind of offended, although I was masculine enough in my own little insecurity to act like uh, it didn't bother me because, uh, you know, I was filled with shame at that point. So I would just quickly respond, you know, I got burned when I was nine, but, you know, it wasn't that big of a deal and I'm doing fine today. Thank you very much. Even Robert, I mentioned running the business. The business I was running back then was real estate development. If you could think of the worst career for a dude with no fingers to grasp yeah. onto, it might be carpentry. It, it might be laying floor. It it's might probably be probably why he picked it. Yeah. And so even as you go through a little therapy in life, you recognize some of the very things you did were done in such a manner so you could climb a ladder and look out to the world and say, look how ordinary I am. Look how normal I am. Look how well adjusted I am. So it's only been in reflection that I've realized that. But even the career I chose was was chosen so out of insecurity. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time, and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best-in-class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Interesting. I thought of you were going to say more chosen out of a challenge. But you, I mean, you started sort of saying this, but how did your relationship to your own story change after that was written? Yeah. So <laughs> they write this book and, and uh, this picture they put on the front of it. I'm, I'm, did they ask you, sorry, did they ask you for permission? Did you know about it till it was done or did, what, how, I, I should have asked that before. 
Yeah, you know, you kind of know about it. And you kind of, you know, mom and dad, they they barely get the Christmas presents wrapped in time for the 25th. I don't think they're yeah. going to pull off writing a book. And they certainly won't get the thing published. So go with it, mom. I don't care. Go have fun. Yeah. You do you, mom. So mom and dad do this. They somehow get the thing printed and published and, and out there. It begins with 200 copies and sold like a couple hundred thousand copies subsequently, which is a huge number for a ma and pa to ship out of their garage. Pretty cool success story there. One of the copies ends up in my hands and I read this book and it just changed me, Robert. Like this story I'd always run from ends up being the story of redemption and heroism and courage and audacity and faithfulness and brilliance and beauty and togetherness and perfection. Like even in the way I viewed my own body and my own story and my own life. And so that was one thing that changed, but even more than what changed for me, I had always viewed my stories happening to me, poor me, which is why I was insecure in my life, I think. And then I read their book and I realized, my gosh, I never thought about what it was like for my dad to get a call when he was at the office. What's that pain like? What's it like to walk into that room and then out of that room and then go to the car and just have a cry? What's it like to pace the halls for five and a half months wondering after you left that room that night, will your son be there when you return in the morning? What's that pain like? What's the pain like to sign the order that gives the doctor permission to amputate your son's fingers when you you know his desire is to become a major league baseball player and you're stealing that from him? What's that pain like? And what's it like for your siblings who for five and a half months are raised outside of their home because their home's burnt down? by neighbors or family members or people who travel in or they're staying at a Howard John. What's that like? And then for years afterwards, all the attention is poured into little John and his recovery and all of that light shines away from you toward him. What's that like? And yet in spite of this, it drew them together. And so instead of me being the victim of the story, I recognized that they, this family were heroes of this story and they pulled me along for the ride. So it just radically changed the way I looked into the mirror and the way I identified with my mom and dad and my brother and my four sisters. So then when I got a call about a week or two after the book came out from a group of Girl Scouts saying, hey, Mr. O'Leary, when they said that to me, I thought, well, you probably want my dad. He's Mr. O'Leary. I'm John. And they go, no, 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 Mr. O'Leary, we want you. Will you speak to our troop? I think because I'd done a little bit of reflection already, I was capable of saying, you know, sure. I had never spoken anywhere. I wasn't well adjusted in understanding really what the story was. I was an introvert. You can't really change your colors around that, but I was an introvert, really nervous, but I was able to say yes. And my first speech, Robert, was not given to Southwest Airlines or Lego. It was three Girl Scouts in St. Louis County. They did not even pay me with a box of Samoas. Those are the ones I would have wanted. Yeah, those are clearly the best. <laughs> so that, that's part of the journey forward to, uh, to embracing the story, embracing the stars, and recognizing the beauty within them. You obviously knew your part of the book, but it sounds like you, until you read your parents' story, you didn't understand how everyone else, like what they actually went through in, in all of it. Because you hadn't talked about it really as a family. It's really twofold. And I think both are as important. Not only did I not know their story at all, but I had, I knew my story perfectly. Yeah. I was the victim in the story. It wasn't the hero's journey. It was the victim's journey, but I'm, I'm still going to do something with my life regardless of that misery. 
then reading it, I realized, what the heck, what have I been doing? I've been asking why me through the wrong lens instead of asking it like, thank you, God. Like, I can't believe I survived this and had the people around me and the family and the support structure, all these incredible things. I'd been asking that question for decades as a victim, which was entirely the wrong way to ask it. That's a perfect segue. So, you know, we were talking about this this past year, you know, for most people has been either one of the worst or hardest of their lives, whether they were directed impacted directly or, or indirectly, like clearly mindset. So one of the things that I often say is I think there's an event and then there's how we react to the event, right? We don't control the event, but I think we control a lot more what comes after. We just tend to lump those things into play. Like no one controlled the fact that a, you know, global pandemic knocked out their life business or otherwise, but you see very different types of responses, level of responses. So there's a mindset play. I mean, how do you encourage someone to think about the mindset that they need in a difficult time, you know, particularly based on, on your experience? And it sounds like your experience before the book and after the book, right? In terms of, I think you had very different mindset approaches. Right. So, the, I mean, the mindset is a critical piece. I'm trying to think through the best way to answer this. And I believe maybe the best way to share is that on September, I think the date is the 17th, but I might be wrong, 2001, I was meeting my grandfather, who was my hero. Just, my, I love my grandfather. Great man, greatest generation guy, veteran, all, you know, everything you would treasure about that community. That's who my grandpa was. I'm meeting him for lunch. And it's six days after September 11th. The stock market is opening up for the first time on this day. And my grandfather shares as we're you know dining at a little baby Italian restaurant here in St. Louis, he shared with me that he bought two large uh, investments that day. He shifted his portfolio. I'm like, well, what did you buy? Probably not a good day to be buying, Grandpa. The markets are opening. They've already fallen. They're going to fall more. Because I was a finance major. I knew this. Grandpa, why don't you know this? And he shares, well, he made a large investment in Boeing and American Airlines. I was going to say airplane. Yeah, it's going to be my guess. <laughs> and I'm like, Grandpa, why would you do that? You know, the, the, out of the whole market, the two that are going to be beat down the worst, probably Boeing and American Airlines, man. So he like took a sip of iced tea and he gave me one of those wise looks back. And he says, John, do you know You're why? You're about they to get a lesson. <laughs> uh, here, yeah. yeah, sit down at my feet for a moment, if you don't mind. Do you know why they call us the greatest generation? I said, tell me. He goes, well, it's not because we endured the Great Depression. I think anybody tries to endure bad days which is probably true. He says, it's not because we went off and we fought in World War II. I think when evil shows up on the horizon, people go and they, they fight against that. That's just what we do. And it's not because when we returned, we built the greatest, most successful society in the history of the world. A humble brag, but that's yeah, what I was just going to say. It sounds like a resume, not a, yeah, a generational resume. It's ultimately because at each of the phases along the journey forward, we never forgot the lessons that we were being taught. We never forgot the lessons being taught during the depression, during the war, and during the rebuild afterwards. We never forgot the lessons. So he's like, I, I'm not going to forget those lessons. And I'm making an, an investment in our community, in our country, and in our global marketplace. I'm making the investment. So th that idea of making the investment when everybody else is heading for the exits to make the investment. A picture that I have a, a business here in, called Live Inspired here in St. Louis. There's a picture that hangs on the back office wall. It's a beautiful picture of firefighters on 9-11 walking toward the Twin Towers. And I get emotional sharing this, man, but oh man, everyone else is doing their very best to get away from this moment. Everybody who is in their right mind is trying to get down the steps and out, away from harm's way. We all know kind of what's going to happen. 
And then there's this line of these good looking young guys lined up, bags on, hats on, looking up, watching the smoke rise, saying, damn it, let's go. Let's go, boys. Let's go. They're moving toward the battle. They're moving toward the storm because they're driven by purpose. They know the why. And so in everything that I try to do in life and in everything I think great leaders try to do as they build their businesses, as they build their families, as they pour into their communities, what allows them to grasp onto the right perspective, the right mindset is the why behind it. Like, why do you do the things you do? Victor Frankl wrote about this in detail. I just reread that book like last week. Yeah. When you know your why, you can endure anyhow. It's one of the quotes from within that book. But he also says, they can take all things away from you, but the last of the great human freedoms to choose your way in any given set of circumstances, to choose your next step forward. I just think sometimes we give too much power to our neighbor, to a headline, to Trump, to Biden, to COVID, to the next thing, to the stock market correction, to whatever, to our parents, to our lousy upbringing, to a fire as a child, to our first marriage. And I get that these things are crisis and they're hard and they're painful and they might be unfair. But I think when we give too much power to those things, we give the power away from our, our ability to take the next right step forward. In 2017, entrepreneur John Rampton was frustrated with the available calendar tools, which led him to create Calendar.com. Calendar.com allows all of your different calendars to come together in one place. It also has some great features that solve many of the common frustration of team calendars. Smart links with notifications ensure you never need to worry about double booking or no-shows. The Find a Time feature compares everyone's schedules at once, finding the optimum time to meet, No more emailing back and forth trying to find out when everyone is free. And you also get analytics that will give you reports that show how you and your team are spending your time, allowing you to be more efficient. If you're looking to make yourself or your team more efficient this year, head over to calendar.com now to start your 30-day free trial and see the difference for yourself. That's C-A-L-E-N-D-A-R.com. I've had several conversations with friends and family during covid and the days where I talked to someone and they sounded really down and depressed, I was like, were you watching the news a lot today? And the answer was almost always yes. Yeah. You know, when I was watching it for three or four hours today, like turn it off. Like <laughs> it's making you feel that bad. <laughs> turn it off. So, I mean, that's the external, right? That's all the stuff we don't, don't control. You know, what you put into your body influences your body's performance and what you put into your mind will absolutely influence your cognitive and your emotional performance. So many of us have become addicted to the political theater. And that is what this is. Yeah. And there's huge cable networks that celebrate this and huge social influencers who become wildly successful because of this. They trade in fear. And it's not new. There's a quote 2,700 years from the, the wisest man who says there is nothing new under the sun. Yeah. Nothing new under the sun. So we act as if this is all new, whether it's a pandemic or a market correction or a difficulty in your family. Uh, there's nothing new under the sun. And there's also nothing new in the tricks of the media. Harvard Business Review did a study back in 2018, and they found that 94% of news stories were negative. This is before COVID-19. This is before the wild divisiveness that we've experienced over the last year or so. 94% of news stories are negative. It's important we recognize they're not telling you what's happening. They're telling you what is going to scare the crap out of you enough so that you will pay attention through two minutes of commercials and be there when they come back in two minutes. That's what this is. And so if you are feeling anxiety from it, stop tuning in, grab a different channel. Look, we've talked about, joked about your book before, right? 
April 2020. <laughs> I mean, again, not a good time. The stores are closing. Probably try to get anyone to talk about a, you know, a book about that wasn't about pandemic. So, but it's not, you didn't pull it, right? You went forward. So what, what did you do there? Uh, I can't, I mean, yeah, they has to had to been the worst month in 10 years to release a book, right? It's an awesome time to write a book about childlike wonder, you know, like yeah. in the midst of well, the child are all terrified. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, there was conversations from the publishing company about pulling it yeah. and we decided not to. And there was formerly going to be this wonderful tour, including a theater performance by John Leary, bringing on some of the guests from the book. And we'd already sold out the theater. And it was like, man, this is so cool. And so disappointing, like heartache. You, you yeah. spent, Robert, as you know, years, yeah. years and years reflecting and meeting and writing and pouring your heart and soul into a project. And then in quotes get canceled. But we decided, no, that's not going to happen. So I think we did two things that we found to be looking back and really successful. Well, three things. Number one is we moved forward. That's the first best step frequently to take. Move, man, move, yeah. go, go. So we moved forward. That was, I think, wise. The second thing is we decided during the midst of all the unrest and all the challenges and in the midst of the crisis to give away 100% of the profits to an organization that is actually making a difference. It's called Big Brothers, Big Sisters. Yeah. So rather than making this thing about, well, what can I get out of it? And, and maybe it will wrong. What can we invest into it? How do we really make a difference in a community of people that are longing for it, needing it? These kids, I'm an active big myself. My wife is an active big herself. I've been, I was for 10 years. Yeah. So like we're, we're passionate about this. And so we decided to give it all away, give it all away. Let's, let's try to make a difference. And then the third thing we did that was really cool. And I, I think looking back on it successful is this theater event was canceled. So 1,700 seats that had been sold and tickets purchased. We had to figure out ways to sign checks back during a time when there was no money coming in, man. Yeah. The money that was, was coming in was going to go to Big Brothers Big Sisters. But we refunded all those checks and decided, let's move forward with the theater performance virtually. And it, that costs money. And that's an investment. But man, during a time and a season when people were so discouraged, let's bring a little joy into the marketplace. Yeah. Something besides the news. So we did. We we had them turn off Fox and CNNBC for just a moment. And then you could turn back into Anderson, you know, right when we're done. But we had them tune into something that was life-giving. And rather than 16 or so, 100 people tuning in, I think we had 66,000 people that were influenced that evening because of this performance, because of the celebration of life in the midst of the storm, in awe. And the work that John O'Leary does never suggests that it's going to be easy. It just reminds us that it's yeah. possible. And when you choose the perspective on the front side, it influences the response on the backside. Like you, you determine top line revenue and bottom line profitability in part by taking the first step with your mindset. So it goes back to your original question. But we, we ended up having a number one national bestseller, not only because we put the left foot in front of the right and moved. That's amazing. Yeah. But because we decided, screw it, man, we're, we're going to share good news during a time when people desperately need it. Hey, Elevate listeners, whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. <coughs> Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. 
And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify-enabled sites is that they already know who I am, and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info. The ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com elevate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash elevate. Harvard Business Review provides information, tools, and practical advice on leadership, management, and strategy through the hbr.org website, their print publication, and their podcast. hbr.org is your go-to for leadership and business management articles. A recent favorite is stop eliminating perfectly good candidates by asking them the wrong questions. Then there are other world-famous case studies, which premium subscribers can access as well. HBR produces a number of leading podcasts from HBR on leadership to my favorite, the HBR IdeaCast podcast. A subscription to HBR also includes access to videos, the big idea, HBR magazine, and a wide variety of newsletters. While much of the Harvard Business Review content is available for free after signing up at their site, Subscriptions to unlimited content start at only $10 a month. Go to www.hbr.org slash subscriptions and enter promo code ELEVATE right now to take advantage of this great offer. Again, go to www.hbr.org slash subscriptions and enter promo code ELEVATE to learn more about this great opportunity to help manage your career and business. Yeah. And I don't mean this in any negative way, but also you probably had a lot of other books coming out that pulled out. So the competition all mailed in and, and now actually they all probably tried to relaunch in the fall or now and when everyone's doing that and it's impossible to get any attention. So yeah, sometimes it's retreat is not, not the best option. Well, in, in all, at the end of the day, the book was about, you know, one of the stats we quote is from Cigna. They found in a study from 2018 that 64% of the respondents, it's a big national organization, 64% of the respondents felt as if they were doing life by themselves. And the word they used, isolated. 64% of people pre-COVID isolated. And then the study goes on to unpack anxiety that comes out of that and depression and then suicide. And that same year, 1.4 million Americans attempted suicide. And so when we thought about the book, Man, it's like there's a need. And if there's a need, you don't do it for you. You do it for the people that might benefit because of it. And so I'm, I'm a champion of life, man. We, we want to make a difference. We want people to elevate like you do. We want people to come together. We want people to grow top line revenue and bottom line profitability. But man, I want people to stay alive and have joy while they have breath in their lungs. And so we unapologetically moved that book forward and, and found some success because of it. Yeah, so you're, you're a father of four, and I know it, it uh, talks about kind of rediscovering this childlike appreciation for both wonder and awe. Well, are there any particular like stories or was there some moment with one of your kids that was kind of the lightning bolt moment for the book? Yeah, I mean, all of them, right? I mean, your yeah. father of three, and I got floored for your listeners who either have children or you've seen children, or maybe at yeah. one point you were a child. You, you recognize, like, even when it's raining, You'll sometimes find your kids outside playing. You're like, get inside, Robert. What the hell are you? Right. Come here. Unless someone tells them they shouldn't play in the rain, they don't know any better. Yeah. They're having fun. They're living. They're alive. And so, the innumerable stories to share. A couple that I'll share just to give a little bit of context. 
one, when my son was three, his name is Jack. He's my oldest. I was shaving. My shirt is off. I'm looking into the mirror. He's three. He's looking up at his dad. He's got a razor in his hand with a little cover on it. and He's fake shaving. So there he is with his little bick and I got my bick. And uh, then he starts tracing on my chest, a scar that goes essentially from my neck to where my belly button is all the way down this big, thick red scar. And I'm thinking that I'm finally about to have the first talk with my yeah. son about why his dad is different. And it's okay. I'd like your friends will accept me. And we'll just share like all this, the, the adult conversation that we have internally. And my son's trace. And then eventually he looks up and he goes, daddy, your tummy is red. It is bumpy and it is ridgy. And then I'm ready to respond and say, it's okay, Jack, we'll figure this out together. And before I can, he says, and daddy, I love it. I just love your red, bumpy, ridgy tummy. I shared that story in a part that was actually less about embracing the reflection in the mirror, although that's a place you could take it, and far more about asking the question of the reader and of the leader in life, what do you see? What do you see? Because what you choose to see will influence what you do, no doubt about it. So if you are the media, for instance, what do you see? What are you looking for? Maybe media. I'm looking for crap. Okay, good. You will find crap. Now you can tell us all about it tonight. What you see will influence what you think, the words you speak, the actions you take, and the results you get in life. And so in that story, we unpack and then we articulate out the opportunity we have as leaders in life to determine, to de- that's key, to determine what we see because it's going to influence our results. Yeah, I mean, that that ties to what I was going to ask you next about sort of one of the key anecdotes of the book was how kindergartners have kind of this genius level of divergent thinking, right? I mean, you're not, something is not, it's not right or it's not wrong. It reminds me again, the discussion we were just having before the call about, can you see, you know, both sides about an issue? What, right. So what, what is it about our current schooling or system that, that over time, you know, removes that? Like, how do we get it back? I mean, I have a daughter who's a junior in high school now and like her, her whole world is about filling in these bubbles and getting it right. And I, and I can see that this is like <laughs> why that works for one part of society, but it's very destructive for others. So I think in asking the question, you also began to answer the question. And it's really not a fault of the school system, but you have to admit when we make some missteps along the way. And so for those who excel at answering true accurately or false accurately or doing the scantron, A, B, C, D, or E, no, there is no F <laughs> appropriately, you move to the front of the classroom. Your parents go home with stickers uh, and you excel. You are showered upon with praise. For those who are a bit more curious, and we're all curious at first, or a bit more mischievous. I have one of my kids and I won't name him or her right now, but, but this <laughs> child, good catch. Yeah. the way we refer to children like this now is spirited. You yeah. may have had a spirited child, Robert, that you helped raise. I have at least one. I, I was one and I have one, at least one. Yeah. And what happens with spirited kids is they get sent to the principal's office and they get sent home with notes saying uh, she or he was out of the desk again. And, and even though we'd already went through this, they kept challenging me on this. You've got to do a better job silencing this child. We silence them, we muzzle them, and then we remind them that those who choose what we tell them to choose excel, and those who don't, you're going to be in trouble. And so over the time, first grade, it's not that big of a deal. But by the time you mention your daughter, you're in high school, 
you know how to take the next right step forward. And so the divergent thinking, that was part of the original question, this idea that maybe two things can exist at the same time. Maybe the Democrats, here's a radical idea, and the Republicans both have some good truth to share. Imagine that, imagine that. Maybe two can exist at the same time. It's called divergent thinking. Uh, That has gone by the wayside. And you're either with me or you're against me. You're either right or you're wrong. And the Scantron reminds us- Or left (laughs) or right, yeah. Right, man. As children though, we are, we're masters. The, the, one of the tests that they do on divergent thinking is they put a paper clip in front of people and they say, what can you make with this? And of course, what we adults make with it is paper clips. Well, what children make with it is, well, you know, if you could make it 10 times the size, it's a paperweight. And if you bend it like this, it's a unicorn. And if you do it like this, it's, it's, it conducts electricity. Watch you, I'll stick it in the outlet, I'll prove it to you. Like they are radical in their divergent thinking. And then we recognize, no, John, it's a paperclip. Then we give them the four choices. Yeah, you know, I, I have a line similar to what you use, you know, it, and, and when I'm trying to, my daughter's very driven and, and remove the stress of her when she's taking the test and stuff. It's just, it's like, look, ABCD. I was like, I was not good at ABCD my right. entire career. And what I do now is people coming to me and being like, what, what would ERF look like? Like, so it's not surprising. Like literally my strength is not the four pre-prescribed answers. It's what is the fifth answer or how do we do the fifth thing? Because we don't know how to do anything. So anything but these four. And and it's funny, I say like most people, the way that because of this thinking, it, you deal with a team and they approach decision-making. Um, there's a guy out there, he called the fourth choice, but but it's either A or, or B, or, or the third choice is the compromise of A and B, right? That is that is how most things are presented as a problem they're trying to solve. Not like, let's throw that away and what's D or E. Well, it, on the, to that point, my that same child I was referring to, the spirited one this morning, apparently did not do one of the questions in his homework assignment. So mom is kind of grilling him on this a little bit. And uh, he's like, I'm just going to ask George. George always gets these right. I'll ask him in homeroom. Yeah. Mom, it's okay. This this little guy is in third grade. And that's what you do later in life. That would be the right answer later. Well, and life. she goes, that's cheating. And I'm yeah. like, hey, no, we call that collaborating as we graduate. Collaborating. You're collaborating. Now in a business, you know, we talk about Jim Collins first. who. Like, you want to solve the problem? Who do you ask? Like, ask the person who knows the answer to the problem. So... Yeah, it's. I agree. It's the it's the incentives and the rewards about getting it right, not willing to fail. You know, I was just even dealing with this on the courses that you take next year. Like, there are not science genes in our family. There just aren't. There might be someday. It's not. We're missing those. But you know, she's getting some advice. Oh, well, you've done well, and you should continue with this. Like, she actually wants to do something else. But like in the profile thing, it's not what you're supposed to do, which is drop it. And it's like this is the stuff that kills me because it's like, look, that's not what you enjoy. That's not what you want to do, do that. But you know, there's a lot of pressure to, Oh, well that won't look right. And it's a huge problem, it is a huge problem. <laughs> without an easy solution. I always think, man, when everybody's swimming in the same direction, it's time for us to, to shift lanes yeah. and to go in a radically different direction. Cause if you're competing against everybody else who looks and acts and works exactly the same as you, it's unlikely that you're the smartest or the fastest, or this will shock some of us. You're all trying most- to get to the same answer, not a different view of the same point, right? right? Yeah. You'll see it from a completely different perspective. And maybe through that lens, you'll see something that others do not see as clearly. And that, that may be the ultimate solution that we're looking for.
So John, what's a personal or professional mistake that you've made? It could be singular or repeated that you learned the most from. We're not going to let you off with a with the easy choice, but we'll go we'll go with a different one. Were you asking for a personal or professional? You can pick. It's it's choose your own adventure. So personally, and I'll tie the two together. And COVID has been a reminder for me. If I'm, I'll just be very honest with you. And maybe some of your listeners will nod their head, and others will shrug their shoulders. I race fast in my business. I'm climbing and climbing and climbing. And what this last year has reminded me of is, John, what to what extent? And I okay. ultimately, nothing would be worse than to become successful in life and then look back and recognize you were successful things that do not matter. So I'm I'm humbly saying this, but I've been I've become successful as a speaker and as an author and as a podcast host and building community and doing work outside of the community and touching lives around the world. But I may not have been the best dad, and I may not have been the best husband, and I and I know for this one I've not been the best son. But for the last 360 days, as of today, I've been home, and I've been so far more engaged as a son. My dad's got Parkinson's; he needs me right now, and for a long time I wasn't there, but I am now. I'm engaged, and I'm engaged not only with him physically, but also with some solutions emotionally and spiritually and financially for my dad. I wasn't always there for my wife. I wasn't always there for my kids. But for the last year, I have been. And so what I'm clear on now going forward is redefining what success looks like from a professional lens through the lens, first and foremost, of what it means for me as a dad, as a husband, as a son, as a spiritual believer, as a community activist, as a guy who wants to make a difference in my own backyard before I race to catch the next flight and close the next deal and climb the next mountain. Very resonant. I hear you on that 100%. I, you know, most of the people I know who speak and travel a lot, they have no interest in going back to the level that they were at before. A few do, or they're dying to like do that. But I, I haven't talked to many who are like, yeah, I really want to get back on the road two weeks out of the month. I, I think it's been some good perspective for people. Absolutely. And, I, you know, to my grandfather's perspective earlier, what a shame if we get through COVID and get through 2020 and get through some of the other challenges that we are facing right now as a society and individually and get back to normal. Yeah, okay. Thank God that's over. Now we can go back to it, man. I just liked old, old days. Wrong. What we must learn is are the lessons, are the lessons. One of the, the early shows I made my kids watch and you listeners can judge me later on in the midst of COVID was uh, what's the one where Pakatani, Phil, Bill uh, Murray. Groundhog Day. Yeah, that is like the, to me, that should be the official movie of COVID. For a while, Bill <laughs> fought against Groundhog Day. He hated his life, but then he becomes a master pianist yeah. and learns languages and can ballroom dance and ice carve and catch kids falling from trees. Yeah. In other words, he's not a victim to the day. He's radically better because of it. It's yeah. a really cool perspective on our lives. And so as we come through the storm, as we begin to re you know, pull the mask down and return to life. Let's not return to the life we had 12 months ago. Let, let's come through this thing more compassionate, more engaged, more creative, more together. How about that one? More together and more resilient going forward. Because if, if that is one of the lessons from COVID, that's a worthy lesson. That's a really good one that we, uh, we can always celebrate looking back on our life. Well said. John, where can people learn more about you and your work? Well, man, you know, I'm on all social media. Our podcast is called Live Inspired with John O'Leary. I've got a website called Read in Awe, readinawe.com. 
That one's easy. Yeah. I encourage you to go there. Go to readandawe.com and you'll see social feeds. You'll learn more about the podcast. There's a free, people love free, a free 21-day challenge so that you can engage with this content. But check it out. Go to readandawe.com. And and the other thing I love about our community is we're we're really engaged with like doing life with people. So if there's ever a need, and this sounds weird, but here it is. If there's ever a need you have, if there's a concern you have, if there's a question you have, if a you're going through a divorce or you got a kid who got burned in your backyard or someone got a diagnosis that was unwanted. I'm here to serve you. The reason I'm alive today is because people served me when they did not need to. So if I can ever make a difference or my organization can make a difference for you or someone that you love or read about, that's why all of our contact info is out there. So hit reply to the information that you receive. Let us know what we can do. And the answer is yes. John, thank you so much for sharing your story. You're you're an inspiration to to so many people. I'm glad glad we finally uh, had a chance to make this happen. Honored, man. Thanks for your work. All right, to our listeners, thanks for tuning into the Elevate podcast today. We'll include links to John and his work on the detailed episode page at robertglazer.com. Huge favor to ask if you enjoyed today's episode with John or you've been enjoying other episodes of the Elevate podcast, I'd really appreciate if you could leave a review. If you're listening on your browser, uh, you can go to the service you're on. If you're on iTunes, you just scroll down, uh, hit on the show, hit reviews and leave a rating or review. Thank you for your support. Till next time, keep elevating. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join podcast royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox or wherever you listen to your podcasts.